0: Uh, Well, hey, if we have not had the opportunity to meet, my name is Randy, and I am the campus pastor here uh, at South Hills here in Idaho. We're so glad you're here. Welcome to the the perfect place for imperfect people. Um, Thanks for hanging out with us this weekend. We have been in a series, as you heard Andrew say a few minutes ago, uh, about friendship, and we started a couple of weeks ago talking about this having this conversation around loneliness and our need for people and for friends. And, and then last week, we began to talk about uh, the, the recipe for friendship. Like, how, how do we even make friends? Like, what does it look like for us to step into relationships and, and, and to actually begin to form and create good friendships? And one of the, the big questions we've been wrestling with throughout this entire series is, is this, Is am I the kind of friend that the friend that I'm looking for is looking for? Am I the kind of person we're all, you know, on the look, we all want to have great friends. We're all looking out for, you know, who the person we're going to connect with and the kind of friends that we want, but, but really turning the conversation around and beginning to ask ourselves, are we the kind of person, am I the kind of friend that the, the kind of friend that I'm looking for is actually looking for? And and so we come to today and maybe the biggest challenge of all, when it comes to us developing deep lifelong friendships So uh, a a few years ago, we moved to the city of uh, Riverside in California, and I met a guy, and we really, really hit it off right from the beginning, and the bromance was strong, like right off the bat. You know what I'm talking about? Like it's, you know, don't make it weird, guys. Like we've all been there, and so we connected really, we, you know, really well, and we tried to set up something so that we could get together and hang out. But every time we did, something always seemed to come up or one of us had to work or we couldn't, it just didn't work out. And so that went on for a few months. And at first it kind of seemed normal and like life was just busy for both of us. But then I started doing that thing where you start kind of questioning and start wondering like, I don't know, did I, did I misread the signs in this relationship? Like maybe he's just not as into it as I thought he was into it. Like he's not as into it as I am. Because we've all been there on both sides of the equation, right? Like, where we're, you know, people are like, let's get together. And you don't tell them, you don't say it all out. But inside, you're like, yeah, that's not going to happen, right? Like, I I don't need another friend and nothing personal. But like, even if I did need another friend, it probably wouldn't be you. (laughs) Like, you know, we've all been there on that side of the equation, but then there's also those moments and those experiences, those seasons, where you do want to get together, where you do want to connect with someone and begin to build a friendship with them, where, you, where you're really trying to find the time to figure it out and to make it happen, but life is just really crazy busy. Like, like, have you ever felt like, I don't have the time to do the things I want to do because I'm so busy doing all the things that I have to do? maybe in your life, like you, you got your business and you got to grow the business and you got to follow up with clients and you got to wash the car and you got to gas the cars up and you're not sure how you're even going to make it to all of your kids baseball games or soccer games, you know, to begin with or both. But then they ask you to coach and you're like, oh, no, I don't want to do that. And you got dishes and homework and cooking and cleaning and you're trying to set up that dentist appointment because you haven't been to the dentist in like 10 years, but your phone won't start dinging while you're trying to do it. And there's that book club that you joined and it's tomorrow night, but there's no chance that you're ever going to actually read the book before now and then. And so you got to go find a YouTube video that gives you the synopsis of the book so you don't show up and look like, you know, like you just wasted everybody's time. Right, and the check engine light has been on in your car for like four or five months now, and you just found out that your daughter has a school project, and the good news is it's due tomorrow! Yay! And then what about romance? You haven't been on a date in six and a half years, or you haven't connected with your husband or your wife in months and sex. I mean, what is that? When is that even supposed to happen? Right? Do you, do you ever just feel like life gets in the way of living? Like you're trying to live your life, but life just keeps crowding in and getting in the way? I mean, sometimes it feels like. Like, like like the wise and very insightful philosopher, Sweet Mae Brown, was right, that ain't nobody got time for that. And the that is like anything and everything that's important that matters. See, we may not even realize it, but it's become normal for us to feel like we absolutely must do more than any of us really can do. See, we want to have good friends and we want to go deep with people, but how do you even have the time and we can't help but feel the weight and the tension of it all because we realize that like we don't live forever right we don't have just like all the time in the world like like our life is passing us by in fact James who was the half-brother of Jesus in James chapter 4 verse 14 he says how do you know what your life will be like tomorrow your life is like the morning fog it's here for a little while but then it's gone in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it says everyone has to die once and then face the consequences. The consequences for what? The consequences for how you lived. And then maybe one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, which is in Psalm 90, verse 12, it says, teach us to realize the brevity of life so that we may grow in wisdom. So welcome to the super cheery Bible hour where early in the morning on Sundays, we remind you 15 different ways from the Bible that you're going to die soon. But David says, Lord, teach us the brevity of life. Why? So that we can actually live better, so that we can grow in wisdom. Part of what makes this life meaningful is that it doesn't last forever, the investment of our time and our energy and our attention actually means something because they're limited. They're not infinite. See, if you had infinite time, it, it wouldn't really mean very much if you invested some of that infinite time into a, a relationship because, after all, you got all the time in the world. I, I read this week that it's, it's estimated that human beings have roughly, the human, being, the human life has roughly 4,200 weeks in it, that most of us live right around there, some of us a little less, some of us a little more, and, and so I quickly did some math and, and found out that if that's true, I really only have about 1,750 weeks left, and I was so sad when I was past the halfway mark, because it didn't even register, like I was like, what, I got less than half, what's that, and I like, oh yeah, I'm not going to live to be 97. The truth is, we all only have so much time, I wonder, are you satisfied with how you're spending it? Because if there's a hole somewhere in your life, if there's a hole in a relationship, the answer at some level has to be no. I mean, at least a little bit. Because in the end, we all know that life and time are finite. But the problem is we don't want to have to live like they are. Because life has limits and limits require choices. And that's really our big problem is that we don't want to have to choose. We don't wanna have to choose what not to do or what not to value or what not to invest in. We don't wanna have to choose to not experience something. And so we buy into the lie that if we could just organize our time, if we could just organize our life a little better, that we actually can do it all. And so we think it's not that it can't all be done, it's just that we haven't figured out how yet to really get it all done. And so we're always on the lookout for life hacks and ways to streamline our life and organize and maximize and be more efficient. And it's not that there's anything inherently wrong with any of those things, because there's not. It's just often that we're looking for them, or we do them because we've bought into the lie that somehow we can be and do and have and taste and see and know and experience it all. In Greek mythology, there's a story of a, a guy named King Sisyphus, and um, he thought he was more—he thought he was smarter and more clever than the god. Excuse me, than the gods. And, and so to punish him. Um, they make him push a boulder up a hill. And he's never able to actually get the boulder up the hill because as soon as he, right at the moment where he's reaching the top, the boulder rolls back down and he's got to go back to the bottom of the hill and start over. And they do not have to punish him that way for eternity. That's not the punishment. The punishment isn't pushing the rock. The punishment is that he's never actually able to get the rock up the hill, And so they don't lock him into this, but he begins to believe every time it's just close enough, he almost got it. It was almost there that if he just maybe tries a little bit different strategy, if he just pushes a little harder, tries a little harder, works a little harder that he can actually do it. And so he actually imprisons himself in that loop because he becomes convinced that he can get the boulder up the hill. I think that's like a perfect picture for how we sort of chase our tail in our life. That if we could just lean in, if we could just try a little harder, if we could be a little stronger, if we could be a little bit more organized, if we could be a little more disciplined, we could actually do it. In Ecclesiastes chapter three, verses one and 11, it says this, for everything, there is a season and a time for every activity under heaven. That God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. And that's an understatement, right? Because the truth is, we can't, we can't see the whole scope of our own life, much less begin to see or understand the whole scope of God's work. Because if we could, we would see that there is a time and a season for everything, that God makes things beautiful in their own time. The truth is, though, if you won't let go of the lie, that you if you just figure out that puzzle, that you can do and have it all, you'll never actually make the necessary decisions and adjustments about your life, about who or what to say no to, so that you can actually begin to say yes to something better. And you'll end up missing out on the beautiful friendships that God has created you for in your life, that he's created you for to experience. You'll never actually have the time to invest in the kinds of friendships and relationships that last a lifetime. The things, the people, and the relationships that God makes beautiful in their time. One of the hardest things for me to learn in my life has been that I can't say yes to everything and everyone that I want to say yes to. I don't know if you're familiar with the Enneagram Uh, It's somewhat of a a personality kind of profiling thing, and it works on a number system. And um, I'm an Enneagram 7, and they are that's right. You know that's right. You can always know if there's a 7 in the room because we will be loud. Um, And and Enneagram 7s are known as the enthusiasts. And it's because they're just stoked on everything all the time. They're stoked on all the good people and all the good stuff in their life and all the good experiences. And so like I, and that it drives my wife crazy, but that is literally me every day. Like I am stoked every single day when I wake up, I'm like, yes, it's another day. Woo, let's do this. And And, and so I want to say yes to everything and everyone all the time. In fact, it doesn't even matter. It's like, hey, can you help? Yes, absolutely. Well, I was gonna say, can you help me work? Absolutely, because I'll bring some tacos and some soda and we'll make it a party while we're working on that thing. Or can you help me paint my house? Yes, I'll be there. Come on, I'll bring some people with me. We'll make, it'll be awesome. We'll throw in some music. We'll do some dancing and we'll paint. Like it will just happen. I can't help it. It's in my DNA. I'm an enthusiast. The problem is that, that's not, a great, that's not a great way to live your life. You're saying yes to everything and everyone all the time. You end up empty and drained. And it's really hard on the people that love you and your family. So I, what I've had to learn in my life is to say no to things that are good so that I can ultimately begin to say yes to things that are better. Because the, the worst thing in life would be to get to the end of your life and be filled with regret, realizing that you invested in the wrong things or in lesser things things, because you can't do it all. You can't see it all, taste it all, experience it all. You actually have to make some decisions. The, the guy who wrote those verses in Ecclesiastes that we read a few minutes ago, his name was Solomon, and you may know some of his story. Solomon, on the surface, on the outside of his life, he seemed to have it all, and he certainly had everything that we aspire to in our culture. He was fortunate enough to be born the son of a king, and so he became king when his dad died. In his lifetime, he accumulated unparalleled riches and wealth, not only for him in that period of history, but really compared to all of human history. On top of that, people traveled from all over the world, world leaders, other rulers, people traveled from all over the world to see the things that he had built and to just sit and listen to him speak. And so he had power and wealth and fame, everything that you could measure success by, Solomon had it. He also wrote a few books. They're included in the scriptures. He wrote a book called The Song of Solomon when he was young and passionate and in love. And he wrote a book called Proverbs when he was the father who was really sharing his wisdom with his kids. But then he writes the book of Ecclesiastes when he's in the later stages of his life, when he's in the twilight of his life and he's coming to grips with all of his own choices and, and ultimately all of the regrets about his life. And so in Ecclesiastes chapter four, verse seven, he says this. He says, again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of this enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business, Solomon said. For two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves, and a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. So Solomon, not only had he done it all and experienced it all, he had done it better and experienced it more deeply deeply. Than almost anyone has in human history. In fact, if you begin to read bigger chunks of Ecclesiastes, he goes in and talks about it. That he, didn't, he denied him. He had the money and the time and the resources and the power to do it. So he denied himself nothing. He built whatever he wanted to build. He did whatever he wanted to do with whoever he wanted to do it. And yet for all of his success, for all of his accomplishments, for all the things he accumulated in his life, When you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you get the overwhelming sense that as he reached the end of his life, that he was feeling desperately alone in the world. And so when he writes about a man who was all alone without a family or friends, when he writes about a man who has achieved and created wealth, but cannot seem to find any contentment or satisfaction in his own life, when he writes about how two are better than one, he's really speaking from his own experience of life and relationships and loneliness in his life that he's surrounded by crowds and people, that he had all the servants and lovers that he could ever want. And yet here he is alone. One of the things that you see when you look at his life is that no matter what he did, that he, he took no one with him. That at some point he decided that he was enough, that he decided that he could go it alone. And it's not until he came to the end of his life that he was standing alone, that he wished that he would actually would have done something different, that he would have invested in more relationships. And so he begins to write, and he says, two are better than one. And, and he's not just talking about your spouse or your significant other. These scriptures get read a lot at uh, weddings, but and there's part of it that has that connotation. He's also just talking about a friendship He's talking about somebody that you're committed to, a person where both of you can depend on each other. He's talking about that friend who, when they need you, you show up for them, and when you need them, they show up for you. He's talking about those friends who know your life dreams and fears, the, those people that know you at your best and have seen you at your worst and still love you and stick by you. I, I think it's interesting when he's talking about the two or are better than one, I, all the different areas that he touches on. Because he says two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Now, there's something obvious and very intuitive that he's talking about, right? Like we can get more done with when someone's working with us than we can by ourselves. But I think also part of what he's saying is like that your, your, your experience, like you're, you're not going to experience the, the kind of impact and success that you're looking for, that you will not have the kind of satisfaction about your life and what you're producing without other people. That success isn't something that you have to do alone. In fact, that you can build a lot more when you're building with someone else and for someone else. So maybe one of the things that we need to wrestle with this morning is like, who are the people that if you succeed without them, it just won't be the same? Who are the people that if you step into your best life, but they're not there with you, that there's something missing? And so then he says, If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But I think it's interesting because nobody, but nobody, makes it through this life without falling down. And just like you, I've seen so many people rise up and fall down and rise up and fall down and rise up and fall down. And honestly, probably like you, that has been the story of my own life and my own experience But what I have experienced in my life, what I've seen is that without exception, that the people who keep getting up time after time after time after time are those who have built into friendships and invested in people. Because when they fall down, they actually have people who love them. Their friends will come around them, will help to pick them up and refuse to leave them behind, refuse to leave them laying there. Yeah, I know that at some level, we all wrestle with like, okay, God, who are the people and where are the people that will come and pick me up when I need it? But I wonder for our lives, I wonder for your life, who is the person that you've just refused to leave behind? And so then he goes on, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And he's using this as a metaphor. He's not talking about Body heat per se, right? He's not just like, hey, girl. You know, this is not like you can be like, all right, it's biblical. God says that your body needs my body to stay warm. No, he's, he's talking about how life inevitably has moments of intense darkness and cold that are too much for any of us. But that when you live a life that's full of light and warmth for other people, what you will find is a life that's full of light and warmth from other people and then finally he says "Though one may be overpowered two can defend themselves and this is maybe my favorite part of what he's writing because i don't know if you've noticed this but life life is a fight and if you try to fight this life alone you'll find yourself exhausted and overwhelmed and beat up and beat down See, the truth is, is that there are some fights that God is wanting you to pick. There are some fights that God is wanting you to take on, but you cannot win them on your own. You're going to need other people. You're going to need friends. You're going to need people to watch your six. You're going to need people who will come alongside and fight with you and for you. It doesn't matter how smart you are, how talented you are. It doesn't matter how tough you are. You need other people. And so the question then becomes, will we build our life and structure our life in a way where we actually have the time to invest in and build and form these kinds of relationships? That's the question. See, the reason why it matters that you cannot do it all is because in our pursuit of trying to do it all, we leave off and we cut out all the opportunities that we have to invest in rich, deep relationships. And it's only once we stop believing that it might somehow be possible to avoid hard choices about how we spend our time, that it's only then that it actually gets easier to make better choices. See, because there will always be too much to do. But what we choose to do with our time, what we choose to do with our life, the choices that we make will be what defines us in the end. And when we reach the end of our life, will we end up being proud of the life that we created? Will we end up being proud of the life that our choices led to? Will we be able to stand and say, it wasn't perfect. I made plenty of mistakes, but I can look at my life and say, I don't have any regrets because I built into the things that matter and the people that mattered. Or will we end up like Solomon at the end of our life, feeling alone, feeling abandoned, feeling all kinds of regret about the way that we spent our time and energy during our life. What's interesting is when you read the scriptures, so much of what God writes to us, so much of the language is actually written around the idea of craftsmanship, which is kind of a a foreign concept for us in our our Western, at least culturally, right? Because we have such an assembly line, kind of mass-produced Walmart, Sam's Club sort of mentality in our culture. But the good news this morning is that God doesn't mass-produce our lives, In fact, he's into handcrafted. He's handcrafting your relationships. He's handcrafting your life. He's handcrafting the story of your life. Like when you read the scriptures, God takes his time to form and shape humanity. And then he gets face to face with us and breathes his life into us. That God takes his time to grow things from the earth. Even when it comes to relationships, when you look at Jesus, Jesus took his time. He was always going slower than what other people wanted him to go. He uh, he took his time to slow grow really close relationships and friendships in his life. So much so that he spent time eating and drinking with people that he had long meandering conversations with his friends and followers about faith and life and God and what it looks like to to, to be in relationship with God. Jesus went to multiple day weddings and drank and laughed and danced. And if you stop and think about it for just a second, when he was here, He was fully human. So he was limited by the human capacity, the human body. He was limited by space and time like us. And so because he made the choices that he made, because he did that, there were things that he missed out on, opportunities that he gave up when he decided to go to weddings, when he decided to sit down for long meals, when he decided to spend multiple days attending a a wedding feast. Like there were conversations and teachings and even miracles that could have happened, that didn't happen because he made those decisions. But what do we do when we're faced with that? We think, well, I mean, there's just no way I can give up that much of a day. There's no way that I can waste that much time. So I'm going to skip the wedding. I'll drop in for a few minutes, say hi to some people, kiss the bride, high-five the groom, give my gift. I'll hang out at the reception for a minute, do the toast. Then I'll dip out, and I'll head over to that meeting that I forgot about. And, oh, there's that phone call that I have to finish for work. I'll do that in the car on the way. And then when I get home, I'll send all these emails that I meant to send, you know, that I was supposed to send yesterday. I'll send those out while I'm lying in bed watching Netflix. And afterwards, we pat ourselves on the back for being so efficient and getting so much done in so little time. But we also wonder why we feel frazzled and exhausted and disconnected from our own soul and from our own life. Because the pace and the decisions and the choices we make all have a cost. I I think one of the greatest gambles so many of us make is that we spend our time skimping on the important stuff. We spend our time skimming our way through life and relationships, betting that we will have the money to buy the freedom to live fuller and to live deeper later that we will somehow have the time and energy to be deeper and fuller in our relationships later. We're Sisyphus, pushing that boulder up the hill. There's actually a warning about this in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter five, verse 15. It says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, wise making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Now notice something about what he says. Notice the descriptions are not the lives of good versus evil, but of wise and foolish. Be careful how you you live then. Not good and evil, wise and foolish, wise and unwise. See, I think one of the primary lenses that God wants to give you for evaluating your life is learning to separate what is wise from what is unwise. For us to be able to discern what is healthy from what is unhealthy, not just what is sin from unsin. See, those moments when we step into relationship with God for the first time so often, the thing that we're most aware of is our own brokenness, our own sinfulness. And 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 so we bring all of that to God and we're just like, oh, here we go, God. And and we feel his sense of forgiveness and and him taking over and and taking all of that stuff away and beginning to clean up our lives and and all of the things, all of the work that Jesus did on the, the cross and through the resurrection. And we just experience that. But but that's not where God wants to stop with you. He actually wants to begin to move you, not just where you the lens you're looking at, what you should do is not just, is it good or bad? Is it sin or not sin? But is it wise or unwise? Is it healthy or unhealthy? Because it's possible to be a good Christian, to be forgiven, to be a good person, to, to, but to also get to the end of your life and to realize that you wasted so much of the life that God gave you, to realize that you lived as unwise. I think that's why he says, be very, very careful how you live. He's giving us a serious warning. Why? Because God will be mad at you if you mess this up? No. Because if you're not careful, you'll waste your life. And so he says, make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. I always thought that was a weird phrase. What a weird thing for him to say. Because the days are evil, and so I was like, well, what is this? What is he really like? What is he trying to say? What is what does that mean?" So I just started kind of digging around and started trying to under, uncover like some of the meanings of some of the words when they got translated, and, and and certainly the word that gets translated as evil certainly it can mean wicked and well evil, but actually in the way that the apostle Paul is writing here, he's actually using it in a different connotation. He, he's using it to describe. How hard life is—that it's full of hardship, that it's full of pain, that it's full of toil and labor, it's full of annoyances. Like that—that's part of it too. Which is really interesting. I think. Aren't you glad that God acknowledges that life is hard and annoying sometimes? Like, for some reason, that just gives me so much hope that God's like, "Yeah, I know. I know how challenging life is." And so the Apostle Paul's going like, "Life is hard." And if you're not careful, your time and your life will be stolen from you, that you will waste it on things that are lesser, that you will waste it on things that are not worthy of your time. And so he's going, You got to make the most of it. You got to redeem it and rescue and recover the power of your own time and your own opportunities. And you got to spend it wisely. So obviously, we could apply this scripture in all kinds of ways to our life and our faith. But before we finish up this morning, I, I want to get really practical with you. And I, I want to use it as a filter for us to just create a, a list of things of how we spend our time and energy so that we can actually invest more deeply in people and in friendships. So The first thing that I want to encourage you to do is to stop doing what doesn't need to be done. I I guarantee it if you were to step outside your life and to follow you around and to watch the things that you say and do in your life, if you stopped and thought about it for long enough, there are things in your life that you are doing, maybe even doing well, that don't that just don't need to be done at all by you or anyone else. And it's not that it's bad, it's just that it's busy work. You remember in school, when you knew when the teacher gave you an assignment and there was no point to this assignment, it was just busy work and you're just like, oh, like the rebellion happened. You just knew it was a waste of time. The problem is like we we have so many pockets in our life that are the same way, right? It, maybe it's something that you started because that's what, it's what your parents did or it's what you thought that a good husband or a good wife or just a good adult does. That's what they're supposed to do. I, I was reading a, a book a few months ago by a lady named Gretchen Rubin, and she wrote this phrase, and it stopped me in my tracks. She said, the biggest waste of time is doing something really well that doesn't need to be done at all. And I was like, you shut up, Gretchen. (laughs) So what are those things? Find those things in your life and just stop doing them. Maybe you need to make a list of them. So you can be reminded, don't do this anymore. The second thing is make a list of things that aren't worth DIYing. I I know like in our culture, like we have that pride. Like I do all of my own stunt work. All right, I do my own chores. I fix my own stuff. I fix my own cars. I mow my own lawn. I do my stuff. Like we have that sense in our culture. The truth is there are things that may need to be done in your life and that you can definitely do them. The question we're asking, is it the best use of your time to do them? Like You can change the oil in all of your cars, but is the few bucks that you're going to save worth a couple of hours of your time? Well, you got to answer that. You got to figure that out. Because most of us wouldn't work for someone for less than $20 an hour, but we do it all the time in our own lives for all kinds of stuff. And so it might be worth it to you. And I I totally understand budgets and economics and all that stuff. I understand the limitations of budgeting things. But the point is this, is that your time matters. And if you're like most people, you vastly undervalue how valuable your time actually is. There's a cost to how you spend your time. And it's always exponentially greater than we think it is because you get one life. So what are the things that could be delegated? What are the things that could be outsourced? What are the things that could be hired out? And if you can do that, then do it. Why? So you can watch more Handmaid's Tale on Hulu? No. So you can take a nap? I don't know, maybe. But ultimately, so that you can do whatever you need to do to show up more in your own life. And so that you can be present and engaged when you do show up. Thirdly, bring bring some people with you. Bring some people with you. We all have things that we cannot stop doing and that we cannot outsource to someone else. So do as many of them as you can with other people. Bring some people along with you. My wife is a ninja at this, she is amazing. I've never met a person that is more productive in their life than my wife. And people like publicly in, you know, circles like this, people are like, oh, Randy is so friendly. But like in my life, I'm like, get away from me. I want to be alone. I want some alone time. My wife is like, I have all this stuff I got to do and it's got to get done. So I'm just going to go and do it with other people. Oh, you got to do that. Let's do it together. Like there's, there's almost nothing in her life that she has to do, whether it's parent, it involves parenting or mommy or teaching a kid, you know, all the, the responsibilities she has at home, all the work that she's doing outside the home. Like she almost does none of it without bringing someone along. And it's not accidental. She's very strategic about it. She just naturally does it. Bring some people along. There's some stuff that you can't get rid of. You can't take off your plate. You got to do it. What if you just brought somebody along with you? Built a relationship. Fourth, limit the drainers and lean into the fillers. There are people in your life, we all know them, we all have relationships with them, that drain us. Right now you can see their face, you, can, you know their name, you can hear their voice. And for some reason in our relationships, Sometimes it's just because we've been known known them for so long. Sometimes it's that friend that we've had since we were a kid. Sometimes it's because they're a part of our family. Sometimes it's because they're somebody who raised us. We're just like, okay, well, I'm just in this relationship, but the relationship is draining to us and our lives. And then you have people that when you're around them, they just fill you up. That every time you move away from them, every time you spend time with them, like you walk away just feeling better about life and feeling like you actually have more courage and like you want to take more on. You, you just feel pumped up. And, and so you actually have to begin to make some decisions. I'm not saying that you cut people out of your life completely that are draining, but you may need to like limit your exposure to some of them. Limit the amount of time that you're spending on the phone. I don't know if you know Gary Vee. Gary Vee's like a marketing business guy that makes videos. That's the best way I can describe it. He also owns several businesses, kind of an entrepreneur, marketing guy. Um, And I I was actually listening to him talk about this. Uh, He was having a conversation with somebody, and they asked him about this very thing. Only the person that was the draining person in his life was the guy's mom. And he's like, man, you got to like you got to limit your exposure to your mom. And he's like, but it's my mom. And he's like, well, maybe don't call her every day. Like maybe call her once a week. right? So it, it's not like limiting or cutting people out of your life completely, but it's limiting your exposure, the people that are draining those relationships. Are, and you know who they are. You know what they are. You know those relationships. Limit the drainers. Lean into those people who fill up your cup. Lean into those people who are pouring into you. Finally, um, is this idea of just automating the things that are important in your relationships. See, sometimes it's just a practical thing of scheduling, right, where we don't have connections and friendships or we don't spend as much time with people as we want because there's that constant, like, every single thing we do is a one-off scheduled thing in our life. What if you just picked a few people and you're just like, hey, Every Sunday night is going to be game night. And you don't have to schedule it. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to plan it. You don't have to figure it out. This is what we do on Sunday nights. This is what every time the Vikings play at home, this, you know. there's a million different things you could do, but automate it, figure it out, make a plan, involve some people and just have it be this regular thing that on this day, at this time, this is what we're doing. These are the people I'm doing with. You don't have to plan it, figure it all out, when to connect. It's just automatic. Because we're all limited, all of us. You cannot do it all. As smart and savvy as you are, and you are, you would have figured it all out by now. But you just can't. You gotta make choices. One last thing on the stuff that Solomon wrote. He said, two are better than one. I think even in this simple statement, there's the acknowledgement of the limitations that we all have. It's almost like he's like, let's not go crazy. He doesn't say 10 are better than one. He doesn't even say three are better than one. He says two are better than one. Let's just start with one, one person, one friend that you would commit yourself to that you would go deep with. One person that you would let them see you And know you. One person that you will show up for. And so the question this morning for all of us is, what are the good things that you're going to say no to so that you can say yes to better things? Maybe even more painfully and awkwardly and uncomfortably to the point. Maybe that thing that's kind of weird for us to even say out loud in church What are the good relationships that you're going to say no to more often so that you can say yes to better ones, to healthier ones, to deeper ones? What are those choices? What are the things you need to stop doing? What are the people that you need to lean into, the ones that you need to limit? At the end of everything, in this little screed that Solomon said, he says a cord of three strands is not easily or quickly broken. And I love this sense because he's making a direct allusion to God that he's going, you want a life that's really difficult to break? You want to be somebody who can weather how difficult and painful who can make it through this fight? All you need is God and one friend. Because a triple-braided cord is not easily or quickly broken. Would you pray with me this morning?